I'm Lemuel Gonzalez, repentant sinner, and along with Amory Armstrong, your heavenly host, I invite you to find a place in the pew for today's painless Sunday school lesson, Without Works. We are returning from hiatus with another episode fighting the conservative takeover of the Christian faith. We will discuss a famous biblical queen who used her influence to serve her people, Esther, the Queen of Persia, in our segment, Pillars of Wisdom. In contrast, though, first, we give the official rebuke to a person who recently addressed a national audience with a six-minute sermon of a new faith, Kimberly Guilfoyle, false prophet in our segment, Get Thee Behind Me, Felicia. Oh, hell no! Kimberly Guilfoyle is the kind of character who shows up a lot these days and shows up a lot in American history, a demagogue. Her personal history is checkered, as she had been the First Lady of California married to Democratic Mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, and is currently dating Donald Trump Jr. She doesn't have a consistent allegiance or an agenda other than to remain the spotlight for as long as she can. Well, and also power. Yes, that seems to be the case. I saw some very embarrassing photographs of her and her husband from um, uh, uh, Newsom from the time that uh, they were the First Lady... Uh, and the uh, of of, the, of, of mayor, of, of no, mayor he, of she was never. I don't believe they were together when he got no. to be the governor of but our state. This very embarrassing picture of them lying in a rug together, you know, this sort of like as a power couple, staring into the camera from their posh apartment. It was very silly. I mean, I want to say quickly, mm-hmm. Gavin Newsom has done some good things, but I've never seen anybody so poised to be the president that that has been every move that he makes is to be president and the only reason that he isn't mayor pete Uh is because he was the mayor of a bigger city and decided to take a pause at the state before going for president there's no other reason that he he didn't run actively going in, in that direction and every sentence that he speaks indicates that he is a political creature and that is all that he wants is power. He wants to run this country. <laughs> also, that's what his hair gel says. Each yes, the hair squeeze gel. of I, hair I gel. Just, I don't understand that. It's a weird look for me. It reminds me of of um, George Hamilton playing a vampire. Yeah. He's, I, I uh, don't get it. <laughs> he's, yes. And like I said, he's done some good things. He's mm. done some very bad things. Um. I'm not his biggest fan, but what I dislike most about him is the want of power coming off of him at every turn. But I will let's turn back to his ex former lady. Yes. At a recent uh, at the recent Republican National Convention, Guilfoyle delivered a six minute address styled after an evangelical sermon, an emphatic, entirely fallacious speech listing the imaginary attacks of the opposing party and the fabricated spiritual values of Donald Trump. Here's an example. As read by Amity Armstrong. I'm going to read this. I will not be reading it in the manner of Kimberly Guilfoyle because I have not taken any cocaine today. Allegedly, allegedly. For you or her? For her. I have really not (laughs) taken any cocaine, cocaine and I am just saying that many people have said cocaine was ingested before she went on stage by both her and Donald Trump Jr. This election is a battle for the soul of America, Your choice is clear. Do you support the cancel culture, the cosmopolitan elites of Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Joe Biden who blame America first? 
Do you think America is to blame? Or do you believe in American greatness? Believe in yourself, in President Trump, in individual and personal responsibility. Oh, I always hate that term. Okay. Well. I'm out. <laughs> yes. Oh, wait, there's more. Now, why single her out from the other mendacious attacks during the convention? She's using evangelical language to herd the religious right conditioned to such language. This is common in political conventions. So is she Manchurian candidating people? Uh, it feels very much like she's using buzzwords that would appeal to people who grew up in the church. Gotcha. And so, in, including terms that have no application to Donald Trump, for instance, personal or individual responsibility. Oh, yeah. No, which he's is never something taken that he's responsibility. Never shown any of nope. while he was in office. And do you believe in American greatness? This is also, um, I, I don't That's know. That's a whitewashing of Right, what America. that means. Nor do I, I see Joe Biden as a cosmopolitan elite. He seems kind of like a, a guy who walks with his hands in his pockets. Although, his... to be fair, he has been in politics in Washington for 40, 50 years. So, right. well, for all intents and purposes, he is cosmopolitan elite. But uh, yeah, this, is the, this is also the mindset of, if you love something, you can't criticize it, and that is uh, not patriotism. Right. That is fanaticism. <laughs> the Democratic Convention uses a softer kind of evangelical language in emphasizing the hope and integrity of ideas. What separates Guilfoyle's speech and the narrative thrust of the RNC speakers is that conscious attempt to create Trump into a messianic figure, a key to individual freedom and success. This is not because of his ideas or his policies or platform, but based on some vague religious virtue. And his constant saying that he is the one who can solve all the things. I alone, I alone can save you. Yes. It seems ridiculous that anyone would claim President Trump as an example of individual and personal responsibility. It is clearly an appeal to the kind of rhetoric reinforced in churches everywhere. Here's another example. Like my parents, you can achieve your American dream. You can be a shining example to the world. Manifest and be the change in this country that you dream, that you hope, that you believe in. Stand for an American president who is fearless, who believes in you, and who loves this country and will fight for her. President Trump is the leader who will rebuild the promise of America and ensure that every citizen can realize their American dream. Now, I have so many issues with this whole right, section. To dissect even those statements, um, being a shining example to the world, that's very religious language. Mm. Manifest the change in this country that you dream, that you hope. I don't understand... Also, the argument, if they don't want change, then why are we trying to manifest change? They're explicitly against change. They're very confused in their messaging. Yes. And to say that this is Stanford American president who is fearless, which is absolutely untrue. Uh, no, he's a big coward. He's a terrified man who believes in you. He doesn't believe in me. I'm Hispanic. He well, no, he, he doesn't believe in you if you didn't vote for him. Right, but no. he also he doesn't believe in me because there's something inherently wrong with me since, you know, the people who look like me are rapists and murderers. Well, he's also um, made pretty clear that he thinks that people who are Christian mm -hmm. are not... Right. That there's something wrong with that. Can you believe that people believe this, though? Right. That's what he says. And who loves this country will fight for her. I'm not sure that Donald Trump ever fought for... For a woman, um, no, maybe he's in a, fought in a women. Strictly biological sense, fought for possession of a woman, but somehow I, it's I, I don't understand even that characterization. 
President Trump is a leader who will rebuild the promise of America. The promise of America meant nothing to my indigenous ancestors. No. I mean, that was, it's again, it's... And the promise of America has only ever been for white people. So. It's the language of the colonizer. Yeah. And yes. and what their ambitions were. Absolutely. So it's it's very weird. She's carrying this out. Um, but again, couching it in such religious terms that it's effectively turning this person into a messianic figure. Yeah, no thanks. This has been the whole thrust, as you've mentioned, yes. of his presidency. I alone can save you. There's yep. chaos in the streets. There's chaos everywhere, but I can do it. And wildly, that's still the message four years later into, when everything right. that is happening is because of you. Right. You're going to save me from you? We How is that going to work? living in what many secular people think is the end of the world. And many religious people might also believe that as well. Um, I think it's the end of America. Right. It's but the end of the world. We're living in that, and he's still claiming that he's going to save us when absolutely everything got so much worse when he took over. Well, and also he keeps referring to Biden's America. Biden's never been president. Right. This I, I is don't. Trump's America. I don't like it. That's what it is. Right. See, no person can be your personal salvation, much less Donald Trump. What earns Guilfoyle the distinction of our contempt is her pretending to be a modern John the Baptist, crying in the wilderness, invoking the name of a leader who will live, uh, bring peace and prosperity and defend you from evil. It's a lie, a false prophet for a false messiah. For that reason, I single her out for rebuke. Vare retro pseudo profeta. And now for something completely different. When we spoke about the prophet Daniel, we mentioned the terrible habit of ancient kings taking the best and most capable of other cultures when they and adding them to their empire. King Asuerus ruled an empire that stretched from India to Ethiopia and counted many cultures among his subjects. He is historically similar to Xerxes, king of Persia, in 44 BCE, and commentators think that he might actually be the king in the story we're about to relate. Asuerus is a tyrant, and there's no doubt about that. When Queen Vashti refuses to appear to show off her beauty to his ogling friends during a, a drunken royal bacchanal, he exiles her. He was counseled to reject her as an example, as that her example might promote female disobedience all over the empire. Where are we? Where are we? Where is the story coming from? Persia. This is coming from the Book of Esther. Thank you. Which is a very good read. We'll talk more about that later. Um, the king then begins a royal beauty contest to find an equally beautiful new queen. One contestant provided to him is an exceptionally beautiful young girl named Esther, an orphan that lives with her relative. Orphan. An oh. orphan that lives with a relative, Mordecai, who's a figure in the royal court. Esther is Jewish, uh, a disfavored minority in Persia. And she keeps the secret. Oh no, she's got to do the passing in Germany thing. Right. This is um, for. I I I had a picture Bible when I was a kid. It was a comic book version of the Bible, and the character as drawn for Esther the Queen of Persia looks so much like 
I guess it's the AT&T host. What is her name? The one who played Squirrel Girl? It looks like she looks oh. like her. And so I just can't, every time I'm reading this story, I can't get the picture of that woman out of my own head. So, but this is a time when ethnically they're all similar. Mm-hmm. But culturally, very different, and, yeah. and culturally, but but you wouldn't be able to look at somebody and go, no, Jewish person, right, Arab person, no, and or so the Persians, Muslim person. Remember, because Abraham, Christian who person. got the promise, there wasn't Muslim people right. yet. Abraham, who got the promise, uh, was from Ur of the Chaldees, so he was from outside of Turkey, and and per- so there was a region where he came from. Right, he was not. Um, different from the other cultures around there. He just adopted this way of life that made him different. Right, but like physically, like no. their characteristics are all similar Right. in this place. Okay. I mean, you could tell maybe regionally in that people from a particular region, at least in the time when they're isolated, we have a friend that um, I joke with her that all of her relatives all look like, you know, they're little, pretty little people. They come from a region of Austria where no one's moved out in 400 years. Oh, they all, and they all very and much They're look all like. very small, lovely people. <laughs> but beyond that, I don't think that there's a, a great or difference that can be. village noticed. where everybody looks like Jaime Hansu. Yes. I'm not telling you where that village is. You'll have to find that on your own. <laughs> Rude. So Esther quickly becomes the king's favorite, and the story for a moment becomes about Mordecai, her cousin. Uncle. It's unclear. He overhears a plot to kill the king and prevents it. At this point, we're introduced to Haman, a royal advisor descended from the Amalekites, a culture with a long history of contention with Hebrews. Haman is a great villain. He has complex motivation, something rare for characters in biblical stories. Not just like, he was out to get him because... Right, it's like, we never know why Cain killed Abel. Uh, jealousy, probably. Well, it That's was probably something like jealousy. fratricide we, comes from. We have... We can infer jealousy. We can infer why uh, Judas Iscariot turns over Jesus. But for the most part, it's um, a lot of it seems to be, you know, you're able to bring your own kind of motivation to the character, but Haman is very clear. See, Haman is furious about Mordecai's success. And he's very, he's furious that someone, particularly a Jew, is, has such a large part of the royal court. So, they knew that Mordecai was Jewish, but not yes. that Esther was not Jewish? not that Esther. They didn't know that there was a tie between the two. But she lives with him. Um, she lives with him as his ward, and she was an orphan, so it could very well oh, be that she be. is not. Okay. Okay. So uh, Mordecai stops this assassination attempt against the king. Good and, job, Mordecai. Right. Okay. So Haman is so furious about Mordecai's success and promotions that he persuades the king in ambiguous language of a new threat to the kingdom, a group of people who refuse to follow the rules, who don't assimilate, who refuse to pay respects to the rightful authority. Does this sound familiar? Uh, no. There's immigrants. We need to build a wall. That's right. Haman would pay into the royal treasury to make sure these people would be destroyed. The king agrees and unknowingly signs a death warrant Whoops. enacted on a particular day for all the Jews in his kingdom. All the He... He yep. accidentally signed a well, death warrant all he does, for all the Jews in the his kingdom? The way that it presents it, Haman, Haman shows up and says, hey, there's a group of insurgents in your kingdom. Now, this is a man who just put this down... This feels like a Cheney Bush situation. Yeah, this, this is a man who just put down an assassination attempt, right? And we also know he's a very impulsive reader. He just got rid of his queen on an impulse. So, um, so Haman knows how to play into that and says, hey, there's a bunch of people... Like those guys who just tried to assassinate you. That's probably the relationship he created. 
who are out to get you, who are out to change the nature of They're your They're all kingdom. rapists and murderers. Something like that. Now, when this royal declaration goes out, and when Mordecai reads it, he knows it's a death sentence for all the Jewish people. He contacts Esther, asking him to use her favors with the king to protect her people before it's too late. Oh, that, no. Does that, that mean, mean her feminine wiles? Well, she's already married to him, so her feminine wiles have overwhelmed the king. He's madly in love with her. Well, I didn't know that they were married. You skipped that part. Okay. <laughs> That's why I said she was looking for a new queen. So they got married. He's in love with her. So Esther has to approach the king and try to find a way hey, to... Hey, hon. Well, um... here's the problem. <laughs> he's the king of Persia. Yeah. So no one approaches him without his permission. That can mean death. You don't just drop by on the king. But you live with him. Right. But not but they in had the same separate room chambers at the I'm same sure. time. She so, was seen when she wa- he wanted to see her and not otherwise. If she approaches the king and she is out of favor, he will not acknowledge her and she's executed. So she is literally taking her life in her hands. This is again got rid of his wife for saying I didn't show up in a drunken bacchanal to show off how pretty I am. To your drunk friends. Oh, right. Right. That would mean that she would have to approach the king without being summoned, and if the king, fickle as he is, does not acknowledge her, she will be put to death. Mordecai scolds her timidity in approaching the king. Do not think... Because realistically, you're going to die either way. Although she doesn't know... They don't know that she's Jewish, so she doesn't... Well, who knows? Somebody may know that and then end up killing her on the... That's wild, though. So Mordecai tells her, do you think that because you are the king in the king's house, you alone above all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you Whoa. have come into our, your royal position for such a time as this? He poxed her house. He poxed on her on a pox on her house. That is what he did. <laughs> He's saying is that maybe something else will come and save us. Maybe something else will save us but from being wiped off the earth. Regardless, because I'm but poxing your house. You're doomed because your royal position is not going to save you. Nah. Then Esther sent his reply. This reply to Mordecai: Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, which is the the kingdom, the capital of the kingdom, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. There are two, for such a time as this, and if I perish, I perish, yeah. have actually become part of our... Yes, that's vernacular. Vernacular, yeah. right. So you hear those phrases used a lot. If I die, I die. It's coming from this story. So, so has... she gets all dolled up mm-hmm. and presents herself. Right. And because she looks so good, king's like... Va 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 boom! <laughs> I right. guess I will not kill you. <laughs> well, he's like, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not exiling her, obviously. Now, what's interesting too is how this story is really about how women just ignore the king's edicts all the time. His wife said, "No, nah, I'm not going to go show myself off." And Esther is like, "I'm just well, going to show." Well, except she up. died, so right. it well, worked you out. Know that she for died. Esther. She was exiled. So, oh, I thought you said executed. Sorry. You know, uh, Esther could be executed if he doesn't. Uh, like extend the royal scepter to her to show that she has his favor. So when Esther shows up... No man should have that power. Go ahead. Well, he's the king of... from Ethiopia to... So, yeah. Unfortunately, he has a lot of power. So, she uh, gets to the royal pardon, and all she wants to do is ask his... She has now risked her life to ask permission to throw him a dinner party. 
and she invites Haman, which is weird because Haman's around. Haman's always around. And she knows, right? Right. She knows, but Haman's always around. Did you ever see Lord of the Rings? Uh-huh. There's uh, Saruman and there's Wormtongue. Yes. It's like, yeah, okay, if that helps the audience, there's a guy just standing behind the king all the time giving uh, him bad advice. Jafar. There we go. As a matter of fact. The king's that's, that's, vizier. Right. Or visor? So, Haman, vizier. Vizier. Visor is above your eyes. Oh, it's half a hat. out of your eyes. Visor's half a hat. Haman is overjoyed at being granted the favor and brags about the success to his wife and his advisors. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Ugh. That is this guy. Ooh. And that's why I said he had a more that complex was motivation. casual anti-Semitism. Again, the motivation here, everything that I get will be worth nothing if this other person's successful too. I mean... Because everything is a pie and what I don't have, or what right. you have, I don't have. That's not how anything works. So, later that same day... Dun, dun, dun. King Asuerus, from overindulgence or insomnia, we all know that he loves to drink, cannot sleep. His curious... I love this because this is such a, an actual personal touch to me. He's curious to have someone read him the royal record. Hey, so what's been going on under, you know, what have I been doing? Well, I've been getting rid of queens and falling in love and doing this other stuff. What else has been going on? And that he reads this to fall asleep. So obviously not so invested in right, the day Right, right. He's not here. So the story of the attempted assassination comes up, and the king, to his credit, is surprised that Mordecai, who saved his life, was not appropriately rewarded. So King Asuerus asks his closest advisor, Haman, and that physically means his closest. It's the middle of the night, and he just says, which one of my advisors is available? And someone says, Haman's outside, <laughs> which to me is even funnier. That Haman's just, I, I pictured him like sleeping outside the door going, you know, what can I do to influence the king? So Haman's asked to come inside, and um, the king asks him, uh, how do you reward a person who's done a great service to the empire and has not been acknowledged? Haman thinks this is about him. So he makes an elaborate proposition involving a royal robe and a crown and a trusted advisor to declare the king's favor while leading this person about the city on a horse. Okay. Haman does this because he assumes he's the one who's going to be honored. Instead, Haman, to his horror, is assigned to be the man declaring the glories of Mordecai and leading him around this horse, which only makes things worse for him, right? He's now really, really, really bitter. The story comes to a climax at Esther's part, as Esther's party guests arrive the next day. She asks the smitten king for a favor. And this is actually the subject of, of some wonderful paintings, I'm told. Oh. Spare my life as there is an edict to kill me and my people. When the enraged king demands who would threaten her, she points at Haman, his advisor. But also, you! <laughs> right. It's you! <laughs> I love this because this is a Agatha Christie mystery. The murderer is in this room. Who is it? And then she, Haman, and she points at him, <laughs> which is the subject of all these paintings, right? Because right. it's a great theatrical gesture. The king storms out of the room in an uncontrollable rage. Haman, knowing the wrath of the king, throws himself on Esther's private couch, asking for mercy. 
The king reappears, and seeing his wife fending off the terror-stricken Haman, assumes that he's trying to rape her, and says, you're trying to rape my wife in my own kingdom? Oh, After you're trying to kill her? <laughs> right. Now you must so die. Haman winds up kind of impaled on a pole. Kind of? Kind of impaled. Whoops. So, yeah, it he happens. He tripped and so he fell with bullets. <laughs> right, like a bug on a pin curtain. It's, just, yeah. it's not good. So the royal edict cannot be lifted. This is something we discussed when we were talking about Daniel, remember? Oh, we right. have to throw people in the lion's den. Why do they not lift the royal edict? Because to admit that he made a mistake in the first place would to be... Would then be to undermine to all of his power ever. He's, but infallible. That's not... He's not infallible, which is what they're trying to encourage. Nah. Esther and Mordecai engineer a self-defense amendment to the original edict. Jews are allowed to defend themselves and act preemptively on their enemies. And then, of course, it goes into... And then the Jews kicked it. You know, just, you know, they... So, also, was there just, like, half-hearted attempts? Um, we don't know. Like, we'll go around and, mm -hmm. you know, threaten you, but we're not really fixing to try and kill you, and you're just like, now you know we're coming. Right. Like, it just feels like, yeah, I don't know, interesting. So, the Book of Esther, I recommend it to anybody. It's a short good read, full of, palace, full of palace intrigue and the kind of twist that made Alexander Dumas popular. Assassination attempts against the king, secret plots, and like the story of Daniel, a clever attack on the Hebrew people getting rebuffed at the last minute. Like the book of Daniel, our brave and resourceful queen is able to use her favor with the king to advantage, change the nature of one of those unchangeable Persian edicts. It's a good ten-chapter read, Here's an interesting part. It is the only book in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. Oh, wow. Now, it well, doesn't mention the name shouldn't of... Shouldn't they not be mentioning the name of no, God No, but anyways? it doesn't even the... mention the word God. Okay. Not at all. Not even once. And so... Just a story of this young Jewish upstart. Right. Just this plucky little girl <laughs> Who, <you laughs> saving her peoples. Well, what I like is that she... Also, it's only one of two ladies... Uh, books, yes. Right? There's only two books it's Ruth in the Bible. and Esther, right? Ruth and okay. Esther, Ruth, who will also do another time. But Esther takes life in her own hands constantly. She's threatened with death on, you know, here. There's two separate occasions here where she could very easily wind up dead. And I like the fact that she's human enough to take a moment to think, am I willing to risk my life so that strangers can live? And then go, yes, I am. Yeah. And then I'm going to take this step, even if it means I die. If I die, I die. This is actually really brave, because we all know how impulsive this king is, and the yeah. kinds of things that he does. And so, um, so there's more to the book than I've described, but uh, the basic plot is there, and I really do recommend it. Um, in, if anything, I think that rather than mentioning God as God, it does give the impression that this sort of re religious optimism, mm -hmm. which is everything that winds up happening, no matter how bad it is, not only is there a way out, there's a way that you're going to succeed. So it's, in that respect, a really good story, but it doesn't have the same sort of element of God directing everything and being seen, but God directing everything and being unseen. Interesting. Okay. Which is more of almost, I think, more of like a modern idea. Yes. I think, and an idea that appeals it to some... It doesn't need to be so explicit right. all the time. It's like God here is very subtle. And, and frankly, it's easier to believe mm -hmm. in situations like that. 
rather than, and then God so smote him. And I'm right. like, did he though? Well, I can believe that God smites people. Some people really deserve it. But in this case, I like the idea that we're looking at, and again, this woman just takes her life. We, we, the other woman that we reviewed in this segment has been Deborah, who winds up you mm-hmm. know, choosing an army and leading her people. Um, and this one's very similar in that she's able to just sort of pull it out of the fire. So the story is so dramatic that it's been turned into a film more than once. It's unfortunately generally told as a romance, as if there's something romantic about this despotic king. Yeah, because by all rights, even though she's his wife, right. she's a slave. Right. It's like the romanticizing of Sally Hemings. Yes, and that that's a good example. It's, in the, it's this romance. Oh, it was a, ro- it was a romance. Mm-hmm. It, she had no say in this. Right. She made it work to the best of her ability, but for all intents and purposes, she was a slave. The, she was a slave, a sex slave. This is the focus of, of the Book of Esther is unlike because I, as I've said, there's been film versions and, and the king. There's always things done to sort of soften his character, but this king is a despotic ruler and a kind of a tyrant, mm-hmm. as far as we know, and he um, so. It's not a romance story. Don't no. take it that way. He's, he's really not the most important character in the story. Esther is. And then Mordecai. And then Haman, of course, because Haman's the antagonist and a great one. But the king is a tyrant. His favors are granted on a whim. And the important part of the story is that she plays and manipulates his vanity to save her people. And she does it in such a heroic way that she is commemorated for this in the holiday Purim. That's just her? That's her. That's like the Jewish Halloween, right? I'm not familiar with it in that context. Exchanging of gifts and food, donating to charity, eating a celebratory meal, public recitation, the scroll of Esther, usually in the synagogue, and reciting additions to the daily prayers and grace. That's awesome. Good for her. However, some people do dress as Haman, <laughs> which is the villain of the story. Um... One part of the story I left out in narrating it, because there's so many kind of in, you know bits and pieces, is that Haman built these very tall gallows to hang Mordecai on, um, which leads to the expression of hanging higher than Haman, because one of the, the, oh, the stories that come out of it is that Haman's family is hung on the gallows afterwards, in, which was something we, we talked about in Daniel. It's like, why does the family always get it? In this case, Haman's wife is always advising him to kill as many Jews as possible. She's like a part of the plot. So, yeah, there's. it's a really fun story. I was right. Mm-hmm. They do dress up. So, right? customs. There uh-huh. are greetings. There are special greetings for the day, which I love. I love a special greeting. Right. Um, masquerading. The custom of masquerading in costumes and wearing of masks probably originated among Italian Jews at the end of the 15th century, Possibly influenced by Carnival. Um, they were like, we want, we want that. <laughs> right. Another thing that they do is the burning of Haman's effigy. I love a burning of an effigy as there well. We Show me an effigy. But because it is in February, mm-hmm. I think that they were looking at Carnival and... Or Carnival, I guess, mm. before it was Latinized. Mm. Um the Good Friday or Fat Tuesday, right? Right into Lent, we're looking at about the same time, so they were like, "Let's yeah. <laughs> let's get in on that." Uh, and then they're um, they're the pastries. 
They're a oh, special traditional food. Now you really have my interest. Patri- Triangular pastries called hamantashen, hamant's <laughs> pockets, or ornsai hamant. Hamans ears. I'm so sorry. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I don't have any Hebrew or Yiddish um, like history. So it's um, a pastry, sweet pastry dough rolled out, cut into circles, filled with poppy seed fillings, and then wrapped up in triangular with or in a triangular shape with the filling showing. You can also add prunes, dates, apricots, apples, or chocolate. Oh wow. And then Sephardic Jews eat a fried pastry called fazulo, fazulo, which I think is just like a donut. But they also refer to it as as Haman's ears. That's very strange. So there you go. And Kreplach. Well, see, there you go. Dumplings. It sounds like so much more fun than the first one. (laughs) Yes. No, that's awesome. This is an awesome holiday, and I did not know it was because of her. Oh, yes. I knew Perm was one of the holidays. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've heard of that holiday before. I also thought it was later in the year. Mostly because I think it, I think maybe on, like, a Big Bang Theory or something, they refer to it, at, like, as a shorthand. They're like, it's like Jewish Halloween. Right. Um, no, I was unaware of anything other. See, this is the problem, and I, I've discussed this with Jewish friends, is that in many cases, and myself included, even though I try to be better about it, Christian knowledge of Jewish faith ends with Jesus. So They're like, you guys have Hanukkah. Right. I'm out. <laughs> but there's uh, uh, this particular friend of both of ours, as a matter of fact, uh, still startles people by telling them, no, no one sacrifices animals in the Jewish faith anymore. <laughs> I mean, they eat animals. But they actually, there are still people who don't know that the faith has moved any away from the type of Jesus. I mean, given that we are in the year 2020, which in the Jewish calendar is like 6,000 and something. Yeah, I feel like some growth has probably happened. And some differences. Uh, And so, yeah, Christians don't offer animals as atonement either, so I'm not sure why that would still be an idea. But she said she'd actually confronted that from people who just thought that for some reason the Jewish faith stopped developing at the time of Christ, because that's really the last contact in the Bible that we have with the Jewish faith. But no, they have wonderful ceremonies now. <laughs> yes. Lots of fun, but And yes. delicious foods. Delicious food. Purim. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you liked it, please subscribe and leave us a review and share it with a friend. Also, Please know that we are going to be back. We're coming back on a regular schedule. We have an internet home without workspodcast.com. Our show notes, links to stories we talk about, and transcripts for our episodes can be found there. We are also reachable at withoutworkspod at gmail.com, on Twitter at withoutworkspod, and on Facebook by searching withoutworkspodcast. All that information is on the website as well, so go there and have a look around. I've been Amity, and he's been Lemuel, and we urge you to stay in and do something good. Yeah!